The last time I was here, uh, four weeks ago, I shifted from the uh, topic that I had originally planned, which was on craving and greed and grasping, and um, talked on the theme of race, racism, and spiritual practice, partly responding to a lot of the events of the past, uh, past months. And at the uh, end of the session, I asked people how many would be interested in continuing with that theme, and the majority uh, raised their hand. So I wanted to do another session exploring that theme. And it's a very, it's a very large theme, and it's a challenging theme. And I particularly wanted to look into just a few discrete areas related to that. I also want to, wanted to do a little bit of review of where I went. How many people were there four weeks ago? Okay, and how many were not? Okay, so it's a little less than half were not there. So I'll, I'll attempt to do some review. Uh, so first of all, it's a very uh, challenging area to look at. And for uh, many of us, uh, it can be very confusing. You know, people, you know, I don't know everyone's uh, background here or how you, how you identify here, but uh, probably most of us would be designated as, as white, most of us here coming from European background. Um, it's a very uh, challenging area. It's, it's, I, I think of racism and the legacy of racism as the main collective suffering of our society, the main wound of the country for four or five hundred years. For people who are dedicated to transforming suffering, both one's own and others, it's, uh, it calls out, you know, and I think that for many of us, the, you know, the ethical commitment which we have can really call us to know how to respond, and yet it's confusing, as we saw last time. It's difficult. I thought I'd read something from, uh, uh, that was written by a friend, uh, Santi Caro, who is an American-born a uh, practitioner and teacher who for many years was a monk in Thailand with a Chan Buddha Dasa. Some of you may know some of his writings. And he also has been uh, following a Chan Buddha Dasa from Thailand, very interested in connecting the teachings with responding to larger scale social issues, which are of course there in every society. And a Chan Buddha Dasa himself did that in his life, even though he was a monk. He was somewhat like Thomas Merton. Some of you know the life of Thomas Merton, the uh, Catholic monk, who lived as a monastic and even as a hermit, uh, you know, and died in 1968. And yet he, he received, during the 1960s, he would receive uh, activists, would come down and visit him. The, the Berrigans would visit him in, uh, at his monastery in rural Kentucky. And he would write. He would write to people who were very active. And Achan Buddha Dasa took a very similar role in Thailand. I have friends in Thailand who were student activists, and they would come down and visit and get guidance and counsel. And it's a very interesting dynamic. That dynamic of uh, lifelong monastics 
who had that sense that the call to respond to suffering is not just personal. So Santi Caro uh, wrote this um, um, in an essay. He said, in the Buddha's original formulation of the Four Noble Truths, he neither spoke of my dukkha nor of your dukkha. If you remember, dukkha is the word that we usually translate as suffering. Sometimes I like to translate it more as reactivity, but it's the, it's the quality that is really the um, aim of our transformative practice, is to work with when the mind is reactive in a compulsive way, typically uh, either caught by um, grasping and greed, craving, the subject that we interrupted, <laughs> Uh, or by aversion, and as it's ex- at its extreme hatred, the pushing away, or some form of just being in a bubble, deluded, uh, not knowing. And so the uh, dukkha is the quality of the reactivity, the pushing away, sometimes we talk about as the resistance to the present moment, which is, can be a small-scale dukkha or a very large sense of suffering. So we distinguish typically suffering in that sense from the presence of pain or the unpleasant. One can have the pain be there, the unpleasant be there, and uh, not necessarily be reactive. As presumably the Buddha was. The Buddha in his older age had physical difficulties. And so the aim to transform suffering is to transform this reaction of the mind. Very crucial point because it become, what it means is one can actually respond to difficulties, conflict, the unpleasant, with love and compassion and wisdom. That distinction becomes crucial for everything we do. And so here's Santikaro. Uh, in the Buddha's original formulation of the Four Noble Truths, he neither spoke of my dukkha nor your dukkha. He spoke simply of dukkha. There is dukkha. There is suffering. It is important that we remember this fact and do not overly personalize the Four Noble Truths such that they become merely a matter of my dukkha and getting rid of my dukkha. Many Buddhists have fallen into this trap, which is a primary reason why many of them are not concerned with the incredible dukkha that surrounds them in the world. It also helps explain why so many practitioners simply retreat into themselves without participating responsibly in collective efforts to solve the dukkha of society. On the other hand, there are many, the do-gooders, who are very concerned with helping others' dukkha get rid of their dukkha, and they don't see their their own personal dukkha. So, he said, we find many of these people in the activist world. Often they're overly concerned with the dukkha of others to the degree that they fail to look within and see the dukkha that is inside them too. Thus, we must, all, we must avoid the trap of your dukkha or their dukkha. We can only get confused when we believe that dukkha can be segregated and compartmentalized. So it's really pointing to a commitment to respond to dukkha, which I think is connected with our ethical commitment to not to harm. And again, uh, some of you may remember in the original formulation, you can find in the text, the Buddha just didn't say just not to harm others. He's also said, don't let harm occur. Don't let others harm. 
You can find that in a lot of the texts. Don't let others kill or don't let people kill in your name. You can find passages like that in the text. So that makes the ethical commitment that we have a little more challenging, doesn't it? If we take on that ethical commitment, it's, and it's a big one. It means it's not just about our face-to-face ethics, but also we have this larger horizon. And so I find that challenging. Right? That, that is, I think, challenging for all of us. And so the area of race, I think, again, it's this large area of uh, collective suffering. And just to go into it, I think, is, involves what I like to call a high degree of difficulty. Remember, I think it's very helpful in our practice to know what the degree of difficulty is that we're encountering. You know, and I, I think of the uh, divers' range from zero to ten. And very helpful, what we're in many ways doing is we are training with lower level difficulties so we can be better with the higher level ones. You know, we can be better with the really demanding situations like someone that's close to us, very ill or dying, or something very painful in our uh, personal lives, or something happening in our organization or our family or the larger society. So, again, I think it's useful to understand the whole area of race and racism as typically involving a high degree of difficulty, and we can see ourselves in training to be able to to work with it. There are a lot of difficulties. It's also very confusing. I got this letter uh, a day or two ago from Norman Fisher, who's a well-known Zen teacher in the area, beloved by many, and sometimes teaches at Spirit Rock. And um, here's what he, he, he wrote, a kind of an annual end-of-the-year letter. And I won't read the whole thing. Um, he said, Practice is joy. That's what the Buddha proposed, an end to suffering, a way of living easy with an open and untroubled heart based on a true understanding of what our life really is. This has been another wonderful year of practice with all of you. And he goes on to say, so I am happy, but I am also unhappy. I believe that our bodhisattva commitment, that's the commitment to Uh, both uh, practice for oneself but to help others means we have to suffer too on behalf of others. As long as people suffer from injustice, violence, oppression, and spiritual deadness, I too suffer because I cannot be at ease when others are not. I am not an isolated entity. My sense of self includes others. It is easy enough to practice generosity and kindness, so, uh, so to speak, not to speak, act, or think in ways that are harmful to or disrespectful of others. This is something I've been committed to for a long time and work on every day. But it is more difficult to know what to do about suffering in the world. Racism, sexism, national and religious hatreds, terrible social injustice which seems ingrained in the economic and political systems we are living under, environmental uncertainty and dread, a general sense of hopelessness prevails underneath our frenetic shopping. This was written right around Christmas time. Underneath our frenetic shopping and doing. We can't ignore this and we can't imagine that our sitting and chanting by themselves will solve these larger problems. These practices sustain us and bring us joy, but we have to do more. We have to pay attention to our social systems, be critical of them, 
and speak and act to make them better, no matter how unlikely or impossible this may seem. Anyway, this is my feeling today as I write and my commitment for the coming year. So he's not quite sure what to do, but the commitment, the ethical commitment, uh, calls him in that way. And I was uh, reflecting on what, you know, what guidance do we really get from the teachings and practices. Sometimes they seem directed to individual practice, don't they? Aspects of them. You know, meditate, be aware, be mindful, develop skillful speech. And it's, you know, uh, you know, last time I gave references to how the teachings on compassion and wisdom can be very helpful, but there are not a lot of obvious teachings traditionally about uh, uh, working with anything other than one's own individual consciousness in the context of a community. Now that context of community is important though, because you may know, and I wanted to say a little bit more about this, that the Buddha himself grew up within a caste society, which had tremendous uh, suffering built into it, that there was a a very rigid caste system under the tradition of his time, which later came to be called Hinduism, in which there were rigid castes of, there was the Brahmin caste at the top, there was the warrior caste, which uh, uh, the Buddhist family, Siddhartha Gautama's family was part of. There were the uh, traders, and then there were the, the workers or the laborers who were sometimes treated almost as slaves. And, and then beneath everyone and outside of the caste system were the, uh, uh, the outcasts or the untouchables who were taken to be impure. And there was a very rigid system there. Now, interestingly, as many of you know, the Buddha did respond to that with, by creating what we might call a counterculture or a counter-community And he said, when you join the community of practitioners, which meant to be a monk or nun, there is no caste, which was a pretty radical move 2,500 years ago. He said, we give up that, we have to give up what he took as a pernicious social system to join the community. He did not try to change the larger society. He didn't have that model. You know, he didn't have that, that wasn't where his energy was. He wasn't a social reformer. But he did, in the sense of relating to the larger society, but he did take the radical move of saying, no caste here. Pretty radical. And he was criticized very vehement, uh, vehemently for it. He said, when you enter this community, he said, no Brahmin am I, no prince, although he was a prince, no farmer. Or, or anything else. I know all the worldly ranks, but knowing them, I go my way as simply nobody. Homeless, in pilgrim garth, with shaven head, I go my way serene. To ask my birth and caste, you ask in vain. It's from 2,500 years ago. So they, they cut through that, and they're very famous uh, passages where the Buddha says, whatever you were by birth doesn't matter in the deepest sense. He says, 
the true Brahman is one who acts with wisdom and compassion and nobility. And there are these passages which must have been infuriating to many people in the society and no doubt caused uh, there to be people who criticized him as there were quite harshly. He said, he, he redefined, he says, by birth alone one is not an outcast, by birth one is not a Brahmin, but rather it is how you act by your deeds that you are an outcast, by deeds you are a Brahmin. By how you act, that determines whether you are, in a sense, noble. So he's basically saying, we don't give attention to that system here in our community. So there was a way that he was actually addressing the larger systems and saying they don't hold here. So that was a, I think that's a significant response, right? And, and so we can, uh, you can also ask, you know, what, what helps us to uh, work with responding to these, to these larger systems? I think that our practices give us tremendous resources. You know, the mindfulness practice, the ability to be with difficult emotions, uh, being uh, with uh, difficult thoughts, the ability to develop skillful speech, to work with conflict, very, very crucial. You know, when I, um, I guided uh, several years ago a two-year program here, I was the director of a program called The Path of Engagement. And we looked into issues of race, diversity, and so forth. And we found that even with people with practice, they were extremely difficult. We had, uh, there was turmoil in our, in our program at times around these issues. They were not easy. You know, um, the saying is, under stress we regress. <laughs> Do you know that one? <laughs> you know, what, whatever kind of stress, and sometimes it's the stress of these issues, right? And we, we get back to rigid reactions often, understandably. We can say that with compassion. And that happened, and we found that we had to actually prepare to go into the territory. We, had, we said we have to have, we had a whole week retreat where we focused on being more skillful with difficulties and conflicts. And we trained in that. And then we went back into the territory of race and diversity. and was much better because we had had the training in skillful speech, working with conflict and so forth. So there are a lot of things that we're practicing for that really, that really can help us. Um, and yet it's, you know, it's uh, quite difficult to know how to deal with these uh, collective issues. Uh, I was thinking that one, you know, there is, I think, this ethical call not to harm, which is very, uh, very significant. And um, let's see where this is. I, I also thought it can be helpful to uh, just to generate the um, generate the energy and perspective to know what to do. I think in every society there is typically some form of oppression. And there are also typically people who are relatively privileged, who may or may not respond to that oppression. And it's a question, what really calls us? You know, do our ethical commitments really call us to do that? And for me, sometimes a thought experiment helps really to, 
to shift one's mind. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it takes meeting people or having certain experiences. You now I was, I was thinking of this. The one thought experiment is, what would you do if you were living in Mississippi in the 1940s or 50s? It's possible that some of you were. <laughs> I don't know. What would you do? Or what would you do with your current consciousness if you were in that situation? You know, all of us have busy lives. You know, it's hard. We have to sometimes have to work hard. We have a lot of demands. Would you feel called to deal with the situation looking at it from a distance? What would you say? You know, what would, would, would you, in good conscience, not be able to help with the situation then? Would you just lead your private life? You know, and I think it's an interesting thought experiment, isn't it? You know, because you can ask, or what, you know, I know Joanna Macy sometimes works with these thought experiments. What would you, if you think of the generation from 40 years from now, what do you tell them <laughs> about what was happening at this time and your response? Again, this isn't to um, trigger guilt, although I want to come back to those kind of difficult emotions. And so um, I was reflecting some on this by um, someone who... I've been in contact with who, for a period of time I was a student, is a man named uh, Bill Drake, whose uh, ancestors lived in Mississippi and were slaveholders. And he wrote a book uh, about his coming to grips with this. But, and I was, and one of the powerful aspects of this book, the book is called Almost Hereditary, A White Southerner's Journey Out of Racism. You know, and it's, what's particularly powerful is that, that he had access to the uh, journals of his, I don't know, great, 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 certain number of greats, <coughs> grandmother, who kept a journal starting in the 1830s, 1830s, 1840s, 1850s. And I thought I'd read that because you can get a sense of, uh, okay, what would you do in her position? You're there, you're on a plantation, and you actually, your family owns slaves. And your life is busy, right? You have things to do. There are ups and downs. What's your, what would you do in that position morally? Again, I think these are thought experiments to help us look at the present time. And so I thought I'd read just two passages from this uh, journal. Let me see. This is from July, 1832. This is Nancy. We are considered in ourselves very helpless and wretched beings. We are subject every moment to great calamities and misfortunes, she wrote as a slaveholder. In September of that year, the ways of providence are mysterious. Would it but favor the brave, the generous, and good? Could I be rich? No one should want while I had it in my power to bestow. I would give to the homeless child of want. My coffer should be open to the destitute. How can the children of dissipation behold the misery of their fellow creatures without paying to alleviate their suffering, to cheer the dying moments of those who are friendless, to soothe the afflicted, to dry the tear from the cheek of misery and dispense happiness? Such, such would, would be the wish of the kind-hearted. Right, so she's 
has that sense of uh, kindness and wishing well, it doesn't seem like she applies it to the slaves. Right? Right? So it's, you know, and I'm trying to say this partly because I'm asking, do we recognize some echo of our own minds? And then some years later in her journal, she talks about going to Richmond, Virginia. And uh, here's one from September 1858. We have a fire for, for uh, Mr. R, who's her husband, because he was complaining of being chilly. In the evening, he went out with Jerry to buy some more slaves to bring home while I spent my time writing letters to June and Douglas. So this is, that's the world, right? That's the world they live in. And again, I'm, I'm saying that partly as a kind of thought experiment. That can sometimes be helpful. So I was, I was thinking of um, focusing on that area and then two others uh, to take us a little more deeply. Last time... I spoke about the way that we could find some uh, resources in the teachings about suffering and compassion on the one hand and wisdom on the other. And that talk is on, is on Dharma Seed. You can go back and listen to that. And I'll, I'll say more about the wisdom aspect because I want to come back to the aspect of ignorance. And I also gave quite a bit of history last time about the peculiar history of the concept of race and racism. Remember I, I talked about how the concept of race was developed in the latter part of the 1600s, uh, especially in Virginia because by the wealthy owners because they were finding that the situation was very fluid and uh, people who were slaves or former slaves, former slaves particularly, of, you know, from Africa were actually intermarrying and connecting with a lot of the people who had been from England or Scotland or whatever. And in fact, they, you know, there was not anything rigid at that point. And at a certain point, the people of African descent and the people of English descent who were less well off got together and had a rebellion against the wealthy. It was at that point that the rigid categories of white and black developed. It wasn't before that. They didn't exist before that. And it, there developed a series of laws, you know, and later, you know, there were um, uh, people who were regarded as uh, scientists who developed theories of race. I mentioned last time how um, it, there's virtual consensus among uh, biologists, anthropologists, and so forth, that the category of race is empty from a biological point of view. It has no meaning. From a social point of view, it has tremendous meaning. You know, and that from a genetic point of view, there, there are no genes particularly connected with so-called races. It's interesting, right? That there is not, and so it's, it's a social construction which develops, you know, that the idea of a white and a black are social constructions. And so I talked about that, and I talked a little bit about the history, uh, you know, the history of uh, racism in this country you know, and I didn't, I was not comprehensive. I talked primarily about slavery, African-Americans, um, what happened after the end of slavery, the development of Jim Crow, the civil rights movement, continual movement with backlash has been the nature of our history. You know, backlash after the Civil War, backlash after the civil rights movement. I think many of you know that history. Right? Backlash that you know, often took uh, subterranean forms like the drug laws, 
which were enforced unequally and have resulted in a large number, particularly of African Americans, essentially being disenfranchised. And that's well documented in a book like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Some, a lot of you know, know this. So I talked about that. I didn't bring in what we might have also talked about in the history in terms of Native Americans, and the, you know, the near genocide of Native Americans. Um, again, see, not seen as properly human. You can find passages in people like Jefferson or Washington speaking about the lack of full humanity. So it's a, how do we relate to this? It's a part of our history, right? And it defines us to be called white is to be part of that system that developed at a certain period of time and that will certainly die at a certain point. It'll end, right? It's a construction. It doesn't, not, we know from our Buddhist practice it doesn't have to do with our deepest identity, right? And yet it's something we have to live with, right? It's, we are, this people, the term is we are racialized, you know. We are designated as whites or blacks or, you know, Asians or whatever. You know, it's not something we choose. You know, we may have our own personal identity, but we are given that designation socially, right? And how do we deal with that? How do we deal with that social structure? Um, I want to acknowledge that it's very difficult to know how to deal with collective issues. But, one, but we do have this training, which I think is very important. One area which can be helpful, and in this I'm partly inspired by the fact that I'm part of a group of uh, so-called white Dharma teachers who have been getting together about once a month and looking into these issues together and doing so in connection with our teaching. Right? That is, that's been inspiring for me. And we've actually been spending a lot of time looking at our formative experiences. How were we socialized? What came? And I think some kind of inquiry like that is really crucial. I, I don't know if I'll do it, but I'd like to see that at Spirit Rock. You know, because it can be, I have found it very, very helpful just to know the nature of one's conditioning. You know, like I say, uh, you may remember in the uh, series of talks that I gave, I think it was last, uh, uh, maybe 2013 in the fall, I gave a series of talks called The Anatomy of Ignorance. You know, in our, our wisdom practice, traditionally is understood as cutting through ignorance. And I talked, but I found it helpful to broaden the sense of ignorance. The sense of ignorance traditionally is understood as spiritual ignorance. But there's also a way that we have a kind of uh, personal or psychological ign ignorance and a social ignorance. And I, in that series, I talked about that. So the personal ignorance is often looked at psychologically. I may have a sense, uh, I may have a sense of myself as not okay. You know, we look at a lot of this when we look at the uh, work on judgments. I may have a sense of myself as not okay, which comes out of my conditioning. That maybe, in one of the examples I gave is, my parents were divorced when I was six years old or eight years old. I took responsibility. I thought I was the fault. I developed um, uh, a sense of not being okay. I'm at fault for what happened in the family. Children often do that. And then, and that stayed with me for the next 30 or 40 years until I moved to Marin, had a good enough job where I was able to afford therapy, and worked it out. 
right? And that's, that's in the kind of the personal or psychological unconscious. And it's a whole area of conditioning and our contemporary resources of psychology really help us to complement the traditional sense of ignorance and say, oh yeah, there's also a personal unconscious, right? That is related to our history and these all intermingle with the, with the social, right? You know, like a, we can have a certain view of ourselves because I'm a woman or because I'm this or that, because I'm African-American or this or that ethnicity. And then there's also the social ignorance of really not knowing our, uh, the kinds of conditioning we have, the sense of self. And this is one of the areas that we can look into when we look more deeply into race. And we found, I found in the group, this was when we looked at our upbringings, people said, my gosh, I was so ignorant. I didn't know about the lives of other people. Right? I was in a bubble, some people said. Not, not everyone was in that bubble. A lot of people weren't, but they, we find, oh, I didn't, or I didn't know the history. How many of us, and I was thinking of my, what were my history books like when I went to high school, right? I think they're better now, are they? No. <laughs> but we can see that there's tremendous ignorance about our social conditioning. A lot of us have been cutting through it, you know. Something, I think, like gender, there's been a lot of progress, right? Up to a certain point, right? We'll have to see. Up to a certain point. Are there still issues about the dishes? <laughs> right? But it, I think it's helpful to see that there are these three dimensions of ignorance. And one of the areas that we can really work with in terms of race is to see to what extent is there ignorance on my part in, that takes really uh, various forms related to race. Some of it can be looking at my upbringing. To what extent was I really aware of what was happening? To what extent am I aware of other people's experiences other than my own ethnic background? And for some of it's very different responses for, for uh, each of us. To what extent am I aware, for example, one of the areas that's of most ignorance is what's sometimes called privilege. Right? That we many people of white background tend to just think of themselves as normal. Right? And I'm just a human being. And we have a term, uh, the underprivileged, right? We don't have a term, the overprivileged. Interesting, right? It's in our language, isn't it? And yet we know that there are certain uh, privileges that come from being called, called white. And there are certain lack of privileges, typically, that come from being member of other groups. You know, and, you know, do, you all, do we all know this? What are some of the privileges that you can think of? Jobs. Yeah, we may have access to jobs. I mean, there's a lot of social scientific study. Someone with, a, you know, someone with a, an African-American sounding name on a job application. You probably have read these kind of studies. Um, with the same educational background will be less likely to get the interview. We know those sort of things, right? And that even, in fact, I think someone with less educational background will tend to be favored over an African-American with more educational background or more skill background. What's another kind of uh, privilege? Housing. Housing. You know, and we know that a lot of the, you know, you can get housing, 
uh, more easily at times. We know that there were restrictive covenants in the history, you know, in this area as well, going up until the 1950s and 60s until they were outlawed, right? There was the, some of the loans to get houses uh, from the 1930s and 40s were only given to people who were white, you know, who were designated white. What are some other, other forms? Education. Just simply being able to walk through Central Park or, or drive in a car and yeah. not get stopped. Yeah, to, to be taken in, in certain sense as normal or within the norm as opposed to outside the norm, which reflects in all sorts of things, right? And, um, and so, any others, people, that come to mind? Yeah. Uh, what? Food. Choice in food. Choice in food. Yeah, so, so all sorts of economically related privilege. Um, education. Education often. Uh, what? Prison sentences. Prison sentences, yeah, we know, we know that, um, you know, as I mentioned, the drug laws are unequally enforced, very well documented. Um, same amount of drug use among. Uh, whites and blacks, and blacks four times more likely to go to prison, right? There are those kind of laws, you know, and blacks 21 times more likely to be killed by police, right? And so we know all that. Yeah, please. Testing. Academic testing. Right. So academic testing. Uh, I think you're, you're really suggesting that the tests are geared to people from one group and not necessarily from another. So you can see, so it's very helpful to look at all this, you know, and to know this. So I think there's part of the response. Last time I talked about three kinds of responses. And again, it's a big area. I talked about individual responses, responses in groups and organizations, such as Spirit Rock, and more collective responses. There's a lot that we can do individually. Some of it's to be really conscious of privilege, to really look at that, watch one's language, to really look into that carefully. Uh, to, it can be very helpful to be in a group, and to, as I've been doing, and to look at one's own history and see how one came of age and what was there. Um, and to, it's also very helpful to look at the history, to really be savvy, to really know what the history is. Many people were well informed by a film like Twelve Years a Slave, right? Very intense, but there's, there's reading that one can do which is very important to read, which again wasn't in the textbooks by and large. You have to look for it, you know, the history. And how, do you, how does one who is a person of goodwill in a society with a lot of systemic suffering, how do you keep a conscience and live ethically? That's really what we're asking. And again, I'm not at all saying that it's easy. It's like a koan, right? In, in Zen you have a koan, which is like this really challenging question that there's not an easy answer for. But what, I'm, what we're talking about are some of the things you can do. Really look at these things. Look at privilege. Look at how you speak. Look at the minds. Now, that brings me to the last area I wanted to touch on, which is that in doing this, our mindfulness practice can be very helpful and our compassion practice can be very helpful because when we look carefully in this area, there are a lot of difficult emotions and thoughts. And I think it's very important to acknowledge that, that there are 
Um, you know, when we look to the emotions, for example, even maybe right in the session, what are some of the emotions that you notice? You can just name one word. Anger. Anger. There might be anger related to um, what's happened, right? Or, I don't know, is it? Or as a response. As a response to what's there, right? can be anger. Um, anger at injustice, perhaps. Anger at the system. Anger at being in the system. And I didn't ask for it to be this way, right? I wouldn't, if I had to design it, it wouldn't be this way. Um, you know, I was thinking of... Uh, yeah, Suzuki Roshi said, things are perfect as they are, and they could also use some improvement. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it could be anger at all sorts of things. Other emotions that are there. Yeah, it could be disgust, right? And again, the question is going to be, how do you work skillfully with emotions? We have training for that, right? But these are going to come up if you look further in this area. What else? Frustration. Fear. There can be, there can be fear. And that could be all sorts of reasons. Do you want to say fear of, for, for you? Um, fear of other races, for yeah. example. There can, be, there can be fear of other races, was mentioned. And it can be on different levels, you know. Um, when, I, when I was in my 20s, I was very interested in dreams. And... Uh, for a period of time, almost dreams were almost more real than waking life for about a year or two, which is an interesting way to live. <laughs> um, and I was just writing down dreams. I'd write down like four or five dreams a morning. And I was just remembering I had a lot of access to the dreams, and it was very interesting. And I could tell all sorts of stories about the dreams. Maybe have a session on dreams. <laughs> that would be interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, and... At a certain point, I went back and cataloged a year's worth of dreams and looked at them, about 1,200 dreams, I think, and went back and looked at them. There were some great ones. There were dreams where I, my favorite was one, I was doing spiritual practice at the time, and my favorite one was when I had a dream and I, was, I went to the, um, a factory where causes and effects were manufactured. <laughs> I saw causes and effects being manufactured, and at that point, I went into a very interesting altered state. <laughs> you know, that was interesting. Uh, but one of the findings I had that was um, somewhat shocking, I mean, not, not totally surprising. I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned, but I grew up in an area where I went to school, an elementary school with African Americans. This was in Maryland. And so I was, you know, had a fair amount of contact. <clears throat> and there were, uh, I mentioned how when I went to junior high, it seemed like there were certain lines of race and class that started forming. And my junior high, I think, had one African-American. Because the lines, and we had some choice as a family, but the school I went to was on the other side, so to speak. And so, anyway, so I had familiarity and I had basically good relations and hadn't had any really difficult experiences, to, my, to the best of my knowledge. Um, and had, in college, spent a lot of time playing basketball with African Americans, you know, you know, often daily, you know. So there was a lot of connection. And still, when I looked at my dreams, virtually every time 
that there was, I was afraid of something, there'd be the appearance of a black man. That was in, that's in my psyche, right? And I would have to think something like that is in the psyches of most white people. I don't know. That's what I found. That's pretty striking, isn't it? And of course, maybe most people don't have access to know that that's there. But there's just fear. That's very, you know, that's, this is showing the kind of how this is at a very deep level. I'm assuming that my findings are not unusual. You know, that I'm not some weird person. I could rephrase that. (laughs) Or that I'm not, my uh, findings are not out of the ordinary. If that's true, that's, that's very, that's very sobering, isn't it? It says that a lot of this is deep in our psyche, deep in our consciousness, or the sense of, the sense of privilege is I am better than, right? That is deep in the psyche. How do you work with that? We don't know so well. It takes, it can take a lot, right? But something like that has to occur more and more, right, for there to be a change. So um, what are other emotions that people have? could be frustration, right? Frustration with... With um, having the wheels of social justice just grind so slowly. Yeah, with frustration with having the wheels of social justice grind so slowly. I also want to say one other fear that a lot of people have is fear of being identified as racist, right? (laughs) You know, in a lot of circles, people sometimes nail each other. Sometimes activist circles, people nail each other. Oh, you said this, you said that. It can make people... You know, be very much on eggshells, right? That's another fear, right? To be seen as not properly moral. So you see it's a very hard area, right? There's all fears, frustration, what else? Shame. Shame. Guilt. Shame and guilt, right, can be very, very strong. You know, we have found that in our group. People who grew up in bubbles where there wasn't much contact, when they looked, there would often be shame. There would often be a sense of guilt. So this is a a sample, and yet we have tools to work with all this. So this is something that we can really um, go into this territory knowing that we have some good tools. We know how to identify these emotions. We know how to work with them. We know how to apply the antidote. We know how to hold everything in compassion, you know as we go into a difficult territory. So I think we have preparation to work with this. But if we're exploring the territory, we can know that these emotions will come up. Also, I think the more positive emotions, uh, maybe hope and faith. And when you go more deeply, sometimes there can be love and aspiration. I have found that in my own meditation. I remember I did a three-month retreat in 1989, and unexpectedly, in the middle of that retreat, when I was deeply quiet, I had the thoughts arise, racism can be, work, can be uh, transformed. There was hope. You know, I, I didn't think about race at all during that retreat, but it was there when I went to certain depths. There was some kind of hope there, some kind of very positive emotion that can be there. Um, and I was, that, that has stayed with me, right? So I think... We, and we know how to develop metta. Maybe it's even metta for future generations, that we want future generations not to have the same kind of, of suffering that there is now, people of all kinds. So 
there are all these different emotions that are, that are uh, there, different kinds of thoughts. And when we enter into the territory, that's what we find, and we have tools for that. So I thought I would just name a few more of these issues. One of them, just name the emotions and thoughts that come up when we go into the territory, when we look, when we watch our minds. You know, notice your minds. Oh, did I just say that? Did I just think that, right? Have to have a lot of compassion, not to be careful about blaming and judging and going into shame and guilt. Those are paralyzing emotions, right? And we also can see, you know, look at the forms of ignorance, reflect on this. This is, again, completely lined up with our Buddhist practice. If we're committed to living with wisdom, which means cutting through ignorance, this is part of what we do. And then just to recognize that all of this is difficult, to take on, to have as part of one's practice to respond to a larger social issue. You know, people of goodwill in every society have to do this. I was thinking of friends I know in India, you know, maybe who are middle class in India. How do they relate to the suffering of their society? These are not easy issues, right? But, but it seems, and I'm saying this partly because my sense is that this is a time, maybe this could be a time that's, par- that's similar to the rise of the civil rights movement. I would, I would hope that way. You know, some people talk of, a, of, a, of an awakening that might be there. You know, and this would be something that everyone in, in one's own way individually, in one's own community, collectively can participate in. So I had brought in an ending. Uh, I had brought in uh, a recording of Martin Luther King, but I want to give you a choice. Uh, I could, I don't know, I wasn't thinking of doing another session on this, but I could end with that, or I could end with uh, some time for discussion. I don't think we have time for both. I'm in, I'm in, which would, which would, how many would like to end with the king and maybe have less discussion? Okay, how many would like to have the discussion? Okay. Um, and those who would like to stay for a few moments can have both. <laughs> okay. So this is, this is recording from uh, 1963. Um, it's a large part of letter to a Birming, from a Birmingham jail. And I think you can hear a lot of what we've covered in this. And particularly, you can hear the sense of uh, the hope and the remembering of, of possibility and really coming from, uh, you know, we need our depths for this issue, right? We need to come from our depths. This is why practice is so important. We need to come from that depths of hope and vision and wisdom that sees race and racism as a mere 400-year uh, detour. as a construction that arises and that will pass away. But you have to have a long perspective, right? You have to have a long perspective. You have to have like a several hundred year plan. Okay. My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, um, I think, did you just do something? Um, I turned the volume down.
I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. Since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. Its ugly record of brutality is widely known. There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than in any other city in the nation. These are the hard, brutal facts of the case. You may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. You speak of our activity in Birmingham as extreme. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? When you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, and you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters. And you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society. And you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park and see her developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you are humiliated day in and day out, by nagging signs reading white in color. And your first name becomes nigger. Your middle name becomes boy, however old you are. And your last name becomes John. And your wife and mother are never given the respected title Mrs. When you are hired by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stands, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, and you are forever fighting 
a degrading and degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. You assert that our actions, even though peaceful, must be condemned because they precipitate violence. Isn't this like condemning Jesus because his unique God consciousness and never-ceasing devotion to God's will precipitated the evil act of crucifixion? I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are at present misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of the Almighty God are embodied in our echoing demands. Let's just uh, sit with this for a few moments, and then we'll um, bring it to our session to an end. I think I'll do what I did last time, which is to ask uh, how many of you uh, are okay to stay uh, five more minutes? And anyone, um, how many would like to stay five more minutes just to finish a little bit? And how many, if you need to go, now it's a few minutes after 11, fine to go. Why don't we take five minutes for those who want to stay? And for those leaving, May it be of benefit for you, for everyone. <laughs> okay, please, uh, any, use the microphone. Just, I'll, I'll be stri- strict with the five minutes. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm looking around at the, uh, the composition of the people in the room today, and I'm noticing, it, this is probably a perception of mine, but... Um, how many people identify as being of female gender? <laughs> Raise your hand. Okay. And, and how many people have felt gender discrimination at, at one point or another? Please raise your hand. Okay. Um, so I guess my question is, yeah. when you're, you're in both camps or mm. you have experience with one yeah. form of discrimination on the one yeah. hand, but yet you're also a member of uh, yeah. a privileged group. Right. How do you hold those two places in compassion? Because personally, I find myself um, getting riled up about injustices, you know, right. racial or gender, right. sexual discrimination, whatever right. it is. Um, so I just wanted to put that no, question thank, out thank there. Thank you. It's a, great, it's a great question. I think 
I think last time I talked a little bit about that. Uh, but what I found helpful in looking into race is to start with the framework of what we can call multiple oppressions, multiple forms of oppression. I find that this actually is very helpful for avoiding shame. And it also can be connected with compassion and with, with empathy. Um, and so we could list 10 or 15 different categories that in our culture have a hierarchy connected with them. You know, gender, sexual orientation, age, religion, educational level, and so forth. In all of these, uh, if you're on the downside, you can often receive negative treatment. You know, and and there, there are a lot more that we could name. And to recognize that, uh, I find it to recognize that everyone, either now or in the past or in the future, has been at the lower end of a hierarchy, um, is helpful. Even, you know, it could be age, could be the elderly are often not seen in a positive light. Right. And so, two things about that. One is that's uh, maybe three things. One is it's very helpful to have that perspective because it doesn't, you know, sometimes there can be the tendency when one looks into race to go quickly to here are the um, uh, people who are oppressed and here are the oppressors, right? And that can be uh, talked about as if that is one's identity period. And having a model of multiple oppressions what, that's not true, right? Uh, that one can see that this is part of one's identity, this particular area, gender, race, that can be a very important part, but it's not the entirety, and that everyone is on both ends of the oppressor oppressed. You know, some people, you know, not very oppressed, some people extremely oppressed, right? You know, so it's not the same. Uh, so that's one point. I find in actually working with these issues, it's extremely helpful to have that perspective because the shame, the guilt that we've talked about, and as well as the nailing of people, the moral righteousness, can be very thick sometimes. Right? And so it's very, this is, a very, for me, a very crucial point and part of being skillful in this area. And also can help one's perspective. This, you know, this is one area. It's not who I am. You know, as a man, it's part of my identity. As a woman part of one's identity and so forth as a so-called white person, African-American, whatever, part of my identity. So the second aspect of that is it's very important not to use that as an excuse not to go into a certain area. <laughs> people sometimes do that. You know, people sometimes do that, say, well, what about this? What about that? And, but I find that it's helpful to have that perspective. And then one can go in freely and just see what's there. right? in that territory, because uh, it, be, it can be used to, uh, you know, awareness of class or gender, for some people sometimes uh, is used as a defense mechanism not to go into looking at race deeply. You know, not at all saying that's what you're bringing up, but it's sometimes the case, and so we want to be careful about that. And then the, the other point, let's see if I can remember the other point. Um, yeah, the other point is that uh, when we really reflect on that, it can really lead to quite a bit of empathy. 
and, and compassion, to know that one has seen this systemic form work in my life in this way is extremely important. You know, I know as someone of Jewish background that, um, you know, knowing the history of anti-Semitism and having experienced some in my life and knowing some in my family, uh, I think makes a huge difference to opening me to be more sensitive to injustice elsewhere, right? And I think that's, I think, I, ma- I imagine that's what also what you experience. And that's, that's very crucial. I was just talking um, a few days ago with a person who is uh, Asian American and her mother's Japanese and received a lot of racism in this country. And she said it makes a huge difference when she works uh, uh, in her capacity in the medical field with African American patients. You know, that it really, she really, there's something shared. You know, there's something that connects. And that, so that's a big part of it. I think if we really go into our own, um, where we have been the, uh, what's sometimes called the target, you know, or the, the downside of the hierarchy, it can really, uh, it can really uh, be a place where that naturally helps us open to compassion and understanding. And all of us have that experience. You know, I mean, it could be political views. It could be all sorts of things that where, where one was in some way treated unfairly simply because of who one was. So a big question, isn't it? Yeah, it's a lot there. Um, maybe just take one more, then I think we should finish. That speech affected me a lot. And I grew up privileged and Jewish. And I believe that it's all up to our parents and the people of our core family to teach us because I think people are ignorant. And I'm talking about myself because that's all I can talk about is that I was raised, my mother had an African-American piano teacher. I was five, and I was always around African-American people. My dad's partner was African-American, and I just feel so grateful that I had parents that taught me to treat everybody the same, and it's up to the parents, and it's up to your friends to teach you not to be ignorant. Thank you. Thank you so much. So again, probably could some of us could stay for another half hour <laughs> and explore. I hope this has been helpful. Um, again, I'm, it's not our usual fare, is it? Uh, but I, I, I felt uh, it important to continue and to, to look into these themes. Um, and again, I think I would like to see maybe in the fall or sometime some kind of uh, some kind of class here, where we can uh, look at the look at these issues in a systematic way over you know over six weeks or eight weeks, and connect it very explicitly with our with our practice. Because I think I think the mature practice of uh, ten years or twenty years or thirty years from now 
will have all these, uh, will, will look a little different from what it does now. I think it will have, it will be broader and we'll have ways, okay, you want to practice liberation, okay, um, study the, broadly these and work through these three kinds of ignorance, you know, uh, work personally and psychologically, okay, look at the social conditioning, okay, um, look at gender, look at class, look at race, right, and uh, see that as uh, uh, very constitutive of one's very sense of self and identity, you know, which one can only see sometimes when one uh, looks in a certain direction. That's what we know from mindfulness practice. We can't just say be mindful generally, we have to say look here, look there. And so there may be uh, a much fuller curriculum in 20 or 30 years that really help define what it means to be liberated at this point in history. And uh, we, so all of us can be part of, if that resonates with you, all of us can be part of that uh, um, community project to develop, uh, continue to develop the sense of what freedom means and what in our practice. So thank you for your uh, patience. And let's just uh, end with two things. One is to just see if out of our time together, whether there's an intention with which you are ending our, our session. And then we finish with the traditional dedication. May our time together, our inquiries, our um, opening of mind and heart and body be beneficial for us, for all beings. Which is really to say in part for us one more time. <laughs> All beings, in part, means us. Thank Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.